Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then um, we're going to take a look at something you may have never, never considered before. Possible, and underline possible with three line, possible pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful day, and as we find ourselves in this third Sunday in Advent, we still find ourselves waiting, waiting for your second coming. And we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come soon, come quickly. And Lord, should you return today or uh, this year in our lifetimes, may you find us faithful, watchful, and expectant. And Lord, I pray that you would give us some insight uh, into your word this morning, perhaps in a way we've never uh, traveled before, and that that might build up our faith in Christ. Guide me, uh, keep us on the rails through the power of your Holy Spirit, be the spectacles, as John Calvin called your spirit, that makes clear to us uh, your word. And give us insight and build us up in Christ so that we might be more faithful Christ men and Christ women uh, all of our days. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want you to picture, I'm going to take a little Aside here, it may seem like a strange way to begin to talk about the Incarnation, but I want to do so first talking about the Ascension of Christ. Picture that Ascension window in the sanctuary. And I've said, you know, since it's Advent, we could also call that the Second Coming window. The angels said, you know, uh, Jesus will return the exact way he left. So is he, is he coming down or is he going up? That could be either way. But um, here's a question you've probably never considered. Was there more than one ascension? Now, before you tar and feather me as a heretic, or before you say, well, of course there's just one. Well, uh, let's talk about that. Um, when Jesus rose bodily from the dead, um, there are numerous accounts of him appearing for a period of 40 days before the event that we call the Ascension. And a lot of, I'm not making this up, but a lot of biblical scholars, good biblical scholars are saying, where did Jesus go when all of a sudden he'd disappear? Or he would appear out of nowhere. Where did he come from? Where did he go? And so scripture's not clear. It doesn't explicitly tell us, but a lot of scholars say, you know, it could be that he was going back and forth from the Father's throne room. There's certainly nothing in scripture that prohibits that. There's nothing in scripture that uh, slam dunk proves that. But I find it interesting that perhaps that's what he did. So maybe what we call the ascension ought to be called the final ascension. And I start that way this morning because could it be that uh, the incarnation was maybe the final incarnation? Now I want to be very careful here. Uh, this is all possible. I'm not going to put both feet down on anything I say today except one scripture text, and we'll get to that later. But um, I want you to be open to the fact that could it be possible that Jesus actually 
appeared on earth before the first Christmas. And if he did, what form would that have taken? And are there texts in the Old Testament that would make you and me think that that sure looks like and acts like Christ? And uh, if you think that way, then how did, did he take on a material body? Um, One thing we need to get clear right away is, you know, when Jesus was born physically through Mary, that was not the beginning of Jesus. A lot of Christians, I've run into too many Christians who think that's when Jesus began. No, no, no. Jesus is part of the eternal Holy Trinity, the triune community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's never been a time when Jesus did not exist. There was a time when materiality did not exist. The physical universe did not exist. There was only spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about something else as well. What about angels, seraphim, cherubim? What are those? Are they spirits? Probably you've not thought too much about this. They are a part of the creation. They are not eternal. There was a time when there were no angels, no cherubim, no seraphim. They were part of the creation. So apparently, you know, when God created the universe, he also created them. So what, were they spirits or did they have a material body? Can't prove it one way or another, but it's interesting that when God tells um, uh, Moses about designing the Ark of the Covenant and all that, uh, the mercy seat on top has cherubim and they have wings. Well, if you're a spirit, why do you need wings? Is there atmosphere in heaven? Do they need wings to flap around? I I don't know. Um, But it's interesting that, uh, you know, if they were just spirits, why would they... Why would they have wings? And Scripture is pretty clear that angels appear on earth. Hebrews tells us to treat strangers with hospitality because you never know if you're entertaining an angel unawares. I don't tell this story to too many people. I never told it until about a year after it happened because I wanted to be sure I wasn't crazy. It was Christmas Day, 2000. And our son, Michael, who was nine at the time, had gone through an eight-and-a-half-hour surgery with Ben Carson to remove a malignant brain tumor. And we didn't know if he was going to live or die. And uh, we had just moved to Dallas. And the Make-A-Wish Foundation kept calling me. And uh, I kept avoiding their call because I felt like to answer that phone was just to to just give up on my son, he was gonna die. Finally, they tracked me down and said, you seem to be avoiding us. Do you believe that we only make offers like this to children that we know are gonna die? And I said, yeah. They said, no, we changed that a long time ago. It's kids with chronic illness. We, we, we don't think your son's gonna die. Uh, okay. So anyway, they arranged a make-a-wish for Michael. They asked him what he wanted to do, and he said, I wanna to go to Disney World, Orlando. So I tell you, they, they provided plane fare, 
cameras, our lodging in Orlando, gave us $800 in cash to spend. I mean, they did everything, it was wonderful. So the only bad thing is they said, um, we've scheduled you to leave on Christmas Day, 2000. I'd been up doing, you know, five services Christmas Eve, got home about one o'clock, and then we were supposed to get on a plane the next afternoon. Well, an ice storm hit Dallas that day. And uh, anyway, we left in plenty of time. They provided uh, free parking at Park and Fly. And we get to the Park and Fly uh, lot, and there's an A-frame sign out front. And it says, lot full. I mean, we don't have much time. I just drove through it, went into the lot. And I was going to try to argue with the person to stick my car, you know, in the back 40 something. I come in there and there's a person at the kiosk and he goes, boy, you're really lucky. There's one spot left here and it's right over there and the van will come by and pick your family up in just a few minutes. We pull in, here comes a van, nice young African-American driver and we head for the airport, DFW. And he uh, says, what airline are you on? I said, American. And so we're on our way there and all of a sudden, he turns around and says, Mr., all of the American Airlines flights have just been canceled. I'm like, and then he looks at me strangely. He turns around and looks at me, he smiles and goes, what are you going to do? I said, well. Yeah, and, okay, well, anyway. I said, what are you going to do? I said, just drop me at the terminal. I'll run in and see what's going on. And he does that. And our family's waiting in the van. And I go up to the counter. And I said, I understand our flight's canceled. And she goes, yes, they are all American flights. And I must have looked really forlorn. She says, is something, I mean, you look really down. I said, I have a Make-A-Wish kid. And there was going to Disney World. At that exact moment, a manager came walking along. And he said, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? And she goes, they have a Make-A-Wish child, and their flight's been canceled. He said, get them on Delta. Try three different airlines. And she does that. I'm waiting there, and none of them can do it. And finally, she says, well, I can get you on an American flight. This was like Saturday on a Wednesday flight. We were scheduled to come back like the next Friday or something. So I'm about to give up. And was it Emily that came running in? And he, he wrote, he handed me a piece of paper and he said, take this in. Yeah. I would have done anything, he said at that point. Walk in there and the woman behind the counter opens up and goes, I don't know what's going on. They just are releasing one American Airlines flight from here to Orlando, has six seats on it. We had six people, but they're not together. I said, I'll take it. He said, well, it's leaving in 10 minutes. And so we run in there, we make the plane. And everything was happening so fast, I never got the driver's name. So anyway, we went to Orlando, did the whole thing, came back. And so I thought, that driver, I don't know what he did, <laughs> but I want to put a letter in his file how well he treated us, blah, 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 blah. So I wrote to the uh, president of American Airlines, and I said, I want to commend this 
employee, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm sorry, park and fly. Uh, the shuttle service, I want to recommend this guy be given, you know, blah, 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 and put this in his file. The president of Park and Fly calls me like two weeks later and goes, I need to talk to you about your experience. I said, fine. And he said, uh, now, you say that a van took you from the Park and Fly to the DFW terminal at approximately 5.15. I said, I know it, because I remember looking at my watch our plane was due to go take off at, you know, 6 o'clock or so. And he goes, Dr. Skates, um, I've checked with the park and fly people. Our lot was full, the one you went to. And there were no vans. We, we keep a careful log of every van that leaves. What time, what happens, and everything else. No van left at that time. And I said, well, I, yeah, they did, because I was on it. Well, there's no record of that. Plus, our drivers know that they're not allowed to drop somebody off and leave the family on the van. That's against company policy. They would not do that. And by the way, what was this employee's name? I said, I don't know. I didn't give you African-American young guy, maybe 26 years old. And he said, well, don't worry. Um, we'll track it down and we'll find out who he is and then we'll call you and let you know. Maybe you can commend him in person or something. I said, fine. So months went by and the park and fly president calls me back and he goes, there, no vans went out. We don't have an African-American driver that works at that park and fly site. And his exact words to me were, apparently somebody upstairs was looking out for you. I thought, okay, well now, <laughs> now, I, I, I jokingly tell that story to people, and I said, now, if you're a racist, that's going to be a problem for you, because this angel was African-American. And was that an angel? Was it a coincidence? It was, you know, I don't know. I'm just telling you exactly what happened. And we took it as a sign that God has hand on our, our shoulders. But, okay, if you run into an angel on earth, are they flesh and blood? Are they incarnate? Do they take on human flesh? If they do, would it be possible for the Son of God to take on human flesh earlier, prior to the incarnation, when he's actually born, becomes a fertilized egg, zygote, embryo, and then a real live baby? I don't know. It, but the possibilities are, are there. Uh, and I want to take you back into the Old Testament and take a look at some of those. And um, you can make your own uh, judgments on this. Um, let's take a look at some of these possibilities. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18, 1 through 3. And, you know, researching this, it's, it's really, I was pretty surprised to find out that most of the early church fathers affirm the idea that there are pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Most of the Reformers, including Calvin and Luther, say definitely yes. And th there are literally about a hundred texts I could take you to, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to take you to ones I think are most compelling. First one's uh, Genesis 18, 1 through 3. If you look at that, this is a story you've heard before. Let me, let me read it. It said, And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, 
by the oaks of Mamre. Now it says, the Lord appeared to him. Not an angel. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, I've read this story for years, and I've always thought, well, that's just three angels. Tremendous amount of good quality biblical scholars say, no, it's two angels and a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Why do they say that? Because Abraham obviously is worshiping these beings. Elsewhere in Scripture, for instance, in Revelation, you see the Apostle John encountered by an angel twice. He bows down and worships. The angel says, don't worship me. Don't do that. Worship only God. But the, the, these, these guys don't say, don't do that. And it says the Lord appeared, not angels. Now, the Old Testament makes clear that you cannot see God the Father and live. The Shekinah glory would just vaporize you. You can't see the Holy Spirit. See Spirit. So what part of God appears here? Scholars say this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Could be. It's just interesting to think about it. Then turn to Genesis 32 and look at verses 24 and 25. Here's an appearance of someone to uh, Jacob. And you've probably read this story before. Verses 24 and 25 say, um, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then if you look down at verses 28 through 30, it says, Then he said, Your name shall no... He's talking to this being. He's talking to Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Can't see Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You'd be vaporized if you saw God the Father, according to Scripture. So is this Jesus? Many scholars say yes. Calvin and Luther say yes. Now turn to Genesis 14 and look at verses 18 through 20. This is the most, I think, mysterious person in all of Scripture, Melchizedek. Genesis 18, or Genesis 14, I'm sorry, verses 18 through 20. It says, um, And Melchizedek, which literally means a king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And here's 
a verse that many of us wish was not in Scripture. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Oh, here's the beginning of tithing. This is where it comes from. Uh, now, who, just who is this Melchizedek? King of righteousness. Um, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Because we get a description of who he is that makes you wonder just what kind of being this is. Hebrews 7, verse 3 says... In describing Melchizedek, he says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Whoa. That's another way of saying this being, Melchizedek, is eternal. He had no beginning of days. He has no end of life. He's always been. Who else is described that way? I, I, I mean, if, if he's not God, then there are two gods. The triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Melchizedek. Well, that's not right. So, many scholars say this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And that's one of Jesus' titles, King of Righteousness. I don't know. Um, there are many times in the Old Testament where instances where a being called the angel of the Lord appears. And again, I did some extensive research on that. And almost all biblical scholars say that's the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I don't feel as confident about that as they are. And they go into deep detail on how they come up with this, and it's just too complicated to really get into here. But um, I'm going to let you make your own decisions. Now, turn to, here's the most compelling Old Testament text to me, even though most of the scholars don't seem to put as much weight on it as they do these Angel of the Lord's texts. But for me, Daniel 3, verses 24 and 25 I find very compelling. Um, this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember that these were young Jewish boys brought to Babylon as part of the Babylonian exile. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to go out and search for the, the sharpest knives in the drawer out there with these Jewish guys. And uh, I'd like to groom them and turn them into, you know, uh, servants of the kingdom. And so Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, get recruited, and you remember the, uh, they're put on a training program, nutrition and everything else, and Daniel uh, and them say, we're not going to eat this food. Why? Were they vegetarians? Were they afraid that Babylonian food would be not good for them? The Bible doesn't really say, but uh, they do this, and their appearance is even better than the guys that are eating all the food from the king's table. But also, um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, decides that, uh, you know, he, he's really God. And um, so he commands everybody, um, uh, well, let's just read the story here. King Nebuchadnezzar 
made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. I mean, this thing's a giant statue of himself. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent out the word that when the music plays, everybody's got to bow down to this uh, statue and worship it. Now, where's Daniel? Daniel's not here. Was he away out of the country or what? It doesn't say. But it's reported in to Nebuchadnezzar that everybody's bowing down and worshiping you except three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of your top guys, part of your cabinet. Well, this sends Nebuchadnezzar into a rage, and he has them you know, put forward, and, and he says, is it true? You're not bowing down and worshiping my statue? They say, no. And he said, well, you know, if you don't, see that furnace over there? You're going to get chunked in. And not even your God could deliver you from that. And they said, well, he might or he might not, but it doesn't matter. We're not going to bow down. Which is, there, there's, a, there's a principle there you and I need to really seize on. You know, Scripture never promises that God's always going to get us out of a jam. You're going to see he does with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what about Stephen, who's stoned in the New Testament? There's no guarantee if you're faithfully following Jesus that you're not going to get cancer or get fired from your job or get in a car wreck or you know, that whole health, wealth, prosperity gospel that is no gospel has nothing to do with Scripture. And yet, unfortunately, as I travel around the world, or I used to, um, that's the thing being exported across the globe by the American church more than anything else. This, and it's the biggest church in America is just three hours east of here in Houston, and it's spewing out that stuff all the time, saying things like, you can have your best life now. Think about that. If you're having your best life now, where does that mean you wind up in eternity? Um, so anyway, but look, look what happens now in verses 24 and um, 25. They, they get chunked into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is really ticked off. He has the thing heated up seven times hotter than it's supposed to. There's probably a warning label on the side saying, do not go above this temperature. He jacks it up. It's so hot that his guards that are throwing him in there, they get burned to a crisp outside of the furnace. So it's pretty hot. And they're chunked in there, bound up in their clothes and their turbans and stuff. That says, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who is this fourth being in the fire. Perhaps an angel. Or, every time, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, is Nebuchadnezzar prophesying here unknowingly? Saying, it looks like the son of a god. I don't know about you, but, you know, when I hear the William Tell Overture, I immediately think of the Lone Ranger. And when I read that text, I immediately think, that must be Jesus in there. Maybe, may not be. I can't prove it, 
I can't prove it's not. It's just interesting that that might be um, one of these pre-incarnation appearances of Christ. Now look at Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. Here's another possible uh, appearance. Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, he didn't say, don't fall down and worship me. I'm just an angel. Worship only God. doesn't say that. He says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Joshua did so. So this being either led Joshua into apostasy, worshiping some beings, not God, or that being was God. Is it God the Father? Probably not, because he'd be obliterated by the Shekinah glory. Holy Spirit? Probably not, because you can't see the... Is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? We're going back to the burning bush with Moses. John Calvin says that appearance of uh, that burning bush, that was Jesus in the... And I, I thought, you know, so G, Jesus takes on fire there instead of flesh. I don't know what you'd call that. Um, but I'm going to take you to one more text. This is the only one I'm going to put both feet down firm and say, yes, Jesus did appear pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. And I can prove it to you. And it's slam dunk. It's not gray, nuanced. And um, turn to Exodus 17, verses 1 through 6. This, I can assure you, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And first you're going to think I'm crazy, but then I'm going to prove it to you. Genesis 6, 17, 1 through 6. They're going, the Israelites are going through the wilderness. Moses is leading them. And uh, so that's where we pick it up here. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin, not meaning doing bad stuff, that's just the name of the area, sin, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? That's what a lot of pastors cry out. Uh, They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, 
pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Do you see Jesus there? You're probably going, No. Was he saying that Moses is Jesus? No. What Moses struck was Jesus. That's crazy. It was a rock. Paul doesn't think so. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. This is the Apostle Paul, you know, and what he writes, I believe, is the inspired, infallible Word of God, not just his opinion. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. He says all through the wilderness, this rock followed them. It wasn't just that rock there at Horeb. Now, is Paul mistaken? Is he being metaphorical here, poetic? Or do we have here, I'd call this the petrification of Christ. <laughs> so the incarnation, the petrification. Jesus takes on you know, a geological form. Can he do that? Last time I looked, he was God. He can pretty much do whatever he wants. He sets the rules. He can become what he wants to become. Um, now, I do want to say maybe Paul is being symbolic here. But, I mean, he, he's, he's pretty conclusive. He said the rock was Christ, not just a symbol. The rock was Christ. So apparently, you know, Jesus made many appearances before the Incarnation. I found one scholar who thinks all this is just baloney, and he says this waters down the incarnation, and we shouldn't be even speculating about this. And I find myself somewhat attracted to that view. You know, what does it prove if these were actual appearances of Christ or not that shouldn't, you know, uh, necessarily... We don't want to base our faith on... The, our, our faith really is based on the incarnation. And if Jesus does appear, then what's the difference between that and what happens on that first Christmas? A whole lot. Remember, we're not Gnostics. Before creation, there's only the spiritual realm. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God speaks, and the entire material universe comes into being. And God is wildly in love with this materiality that he's created. So much so that when we mess it up, 
He does the impossible. Remember, C.S. Lewis calls it the grand miracles. Miracle. That the infinite God actually is able to enter into finite time and space in the actual person of a human being without becoming unlike himself as God. This is totally anathema to the Greeks and Romans. The gods would never, they would never get close to human beings, let alone become one. To the Jews, they just had no concept of this. So it's a scandal to them. Um, but that's what scripture makes clear. And the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, if that's what these are, he is fully God in all of these appearances. But something different happens at the incarnation or the final incarnation, whatever you want to call it, that he actually becomes, he remains fully God while also becoming fully human. That's what we affirm as Christians. That kind of thinking, theologians didn't sit around and dream that up. If you study the New Testament, that's what asserts itself on you, that this being is fully God and fully man, 100% human, 100% deity. There were heresies that arose in the early church saying, well, he was just like half man, half God. No. Or he just appeared to be like a human being, but he's really 100% God, but no. Our confessions were hammered out over four centuries, and all of them conclusively say this being was 100% God, 100% man. Why is that important? Because you and I, as human beings, we sinned. And humanity must pay for that sin. That's the justice of God as defined by the Old Testament. We have to pay for our sin. Problem is, you and I can't. We can't do enough sacrifices, die enough deaths to cover it. It would take an infinite sacrifice to cover just my sin, let alone all yours piled on top of it. Take an infinite sacrifice. Well, no human being can do that. So God solves the dilemma by himself becoming, at the same time, fully God, fully man. So that when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not just a human being, a martyr, hanging there, suffering what you and I would suffer if we were hung on a cross. No, he's actually the God of the universe hanging there, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the Frankenstein monster, it's us, we kill our creator and hang him on a cross. But it had to be that way because that's the only once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that could cover my sin, your sin, and the entire sin of the world. So something cosmic happens on the cross that I can't even begin to fully understand, but I believe it's, it's true. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is one of my favorite verses where it says that Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, actually became sin for you and me. What does that mean? How can this pure, infinite, holy Son of righteousness become sin? I don't know. But the Bible says that. I, you know, I said, I think last week, I said, I invented a word to define how that happens. Here's the word. 
very deep theological word. But somehow Jesus sucked in all of the sin of the world into himself. And on that cross, a transaction occurs that covers completely our sin. That's our only hope. And that's the gospel of grace. That's why disabuse yourself of any idea that there must be something I can do to, you know, kind of help me on the journey. To, no, there's nothing you can do. It has to be infinite. And so God does that for us in himself. So, um, you know, an appearance of God is called a, a theophany. Theo and Phanus's appearance, appearance of God. A Christophany is an appearance of Christ. So are these Christophanies in the Old Testament? Most scholars I looked at said, yeah, but I want to be very careful here. Um, I don't think we can put that much stock in. I think where Scripture is clear, you and I need to be clear. Where Scripture is silent, you probably ought to shut up. Where Scripture is, then we need to hold tentatively. So I just find it interesting and somewhat compelling when I see these things in the Old Testament that you know, I don't think Jesus just confined himself to uh, New Testament times. And it makes sense that uh, his name is Emmanuel, God with us, that he's never not been with us. He's always been there, and Paul says he traveled with the Israelites through the wilderness, and the rock was Christ. And I think there's foreshadowing there of the crucifixion. You know, Moses is striking the rock. Uh, that's pretty much, that's us. We still, you know, but God's a God of grace. He's the God, you, know, you kick him in the teeth, and he turns around and says, did you hurt your foot? Um, he's more concerned about us than anything else. And that's why he came incarnate. And because of that, um, you and I have all the hope in the world. All the hope in the world. And we're sealed in Christ. Next week, I'm going to take you on a journey that you've probably never thought about before. We usually think of the incarnation as being an event. Christmas, God taking on human flesh. Does that event ever end? I'm going to take you on a journey next week, and I think you're going to have your eyes open to some things you've probably never thought about before, and they're clearly taught in Scripture, so we're not going to be in a, a nebulous area here. It's going to be concrete. Well, I'm going to stop and see if you have any questions. We've got about, uh, I don't know, five or six minutes if people have questions. Tom, are you raising your hand? Remember a quote from uh, the book Night by Eli Fazell? Uh, yeah. Where the, the child is uh, hanging. Hanging. Yeah. And uh, they, one whispers to the other, Where is God? And they say, He's, he's hanging there before us. Yeah, he's in that noose. The other prisoners die quickly, but he's so light and he's struggling. And that's when the prisoner says, Where is God? Where is God? In the noose. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of the cross. God is not aloof from our suffering. I, I, I don't understand, you know, if I was God, I'd be healing everybody all the time and doing all, you know, rescuing animals that fall. You know. But I'm not God. Um, and, but I don't like it that he doesn't act like I would. 
And so I have to look at life and all of its tragedy through the lens of the cross. And I'm, I'm not look, looking to get my martyr card punched or anything. But, you know, I've buried a kid, gone through cancer with another kid, and it's not fun. And uh, if I don't look at those things through the lens of the cross, you know, God is not aloof. And as I look back, I can see how God was with our daughter Anna and with Michael or something, you know, and with us. I used to laugh at that Hallmark, I don't know if it's Hallmark card or something, you know, the, the, the footprints in the sand? Uh, I thought, oh, that's so schmaltzy. You know, the, the, the idea is, you know, there's two sets of, or a guy dies and goes to heaven, and God, I've got a beef with you. Well, what's, what's the beef? Well, you said, I'm going to be with you always. And um, you weren't. And see, there's my footprints in the sand. There's two of us walking together. And then all of a sudden, there's one set of footprints. See, you left me. And there's... God says, no, that's where I carried you. And after the death of our daughter, I looked at that a whole different. And I said, yeah, he's, he, he carries us. So he's not aloof from our suffering. I still don't understand it, why he allows it. But my friend Jim Dennison in Dallas says, God never allows anything to come into our lives that hasn't already gone through his fingers. And he has promised to redeem. That's either true or not true. If it's not true, then nothing <laughs> makes any sense. Probably if it's true. And so I, I can trust. As C.S. Lewis says, we're going to spend the first 10,000 years in eternity going, oh, now I understand. So I just have to hold on to that. Good question. Any other questions? Okay. Can't get better than perfect, right? Huh? Well, next week we'll, we'll look at the eternalness of the incarnation. And uh, remember, the person sitting in front of you, if you're going to worship after this, or in behind you, might be an angel. So treat them nicely. You never know. Speaking on behalf of the attendance sheet, that everybody go, please sign in. Uh, they like it when we do that. <laughs>